real, real conversation, conversation and some hard truths. Hard truths. Gangs, Gangs, drugs, drugs and, guns. and guns. Giving a voice to those willing to sacrifice. We have stories that need to be told. We have lessons that need to be taught. Protect and serve. Welcome to The Quiet Professional. Welcome back, everybody. Nathan Rome is with you. Today, we're going to be focused on things such as drugs and violence, but also gangs and organized crime and the effects close to home. And for that, I have Michael Brown on the program. Michael spent over 30 years with the U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration, where his career began in Detroit, Michigan in 1989. His work has taken him to places as far away as Islamabad, Pakistan, and spanned several continents from Asia and the Middle East to Central and South America. He brings a unique boots-to-suits perspective as he's worked in a variety of capacities. He's taken on undercover and high-risk special agent jobs, as well as mid-level executive management and high-level foreign official positions. In 1997, Mike earned his master's degree in interdisciplinary technology and management from the University of Eastern Michigan. He is the current director of counter-drug technology with Rigaku Analytical Devices. He's also the host of a podcast called The Opioid Matrix, A Journey into the Rabbit Hole. So check that out. Uh, Welcome, Mike. Hey, thank you for the introduction. So uh, I'm honored to have you on here. And as I was saying just before we kind of fired this up, you're the second DEA person I've had on. Uh, You guys put out a ton of material. You've been all over the world. So it's always interesting to talk to everybody from that organization. Um, But Maybe if we could start with you and talk about kind of where you came from, uh, family, uh, growing up. So kind of tell us a bit about you. Sure. I'll, I'll take you from where it actually gets interesting and save you the, the really boring parts. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, I just finished college. I was working as a store security officer, plain clothes in one of the large department stores in Cincinnati, Ohio. And I was planning to go to law school, right? Uh, just take my LSAT. I was looking at the University of Cincinnati Law School. Um, when I was working with uh, some Cincinnati police officers on a case, a big shoplifting case, an organized crime group came in, tried to steal, you know, tens of thousands of dollars of merchandise. We caught some, some got away. Hmm. Um, long story short, talked to one of the police officers. And he's like, you know, Mike, you, you kind of have a knack for security and, and, you know, this level of law enforcement. Did you ever think about going federal? And I was a federal. I was like, I wasn't even thinking about federal. He's like, yeah, you know, DEA, FBI. Um, he said, you should, you should check them out and, and see what you think. So I did some research, looked into the FBI, looked into DEA. And then a few weeks later, I actually went down to the Cincinnati uh, resident office uh, for DEA and, mm-hmm. and talked to my, my former mentor, Herb Warren, um, who was the agent in charge there. And uh, I, you know, I had just come from work. I had a sweatsuit on. At that time, I had my hair pulled back like a little ponytail because <laughs> I was trying to blend in with the with the crowd doing my, uh, my undercover detective work. And uh, so, you know, Herb Warren, Mr. Warren gave me, you know, talked about DEA. Hey, it's a great career. Um, you know, gave me all the, the breakdowns on what you could do and the overseas jobs and work can take you. And he says, look, I don't have a lot of time today. We'll come back tomorrow for a formal interview. I said, hey, sir, appreciate the time. So as I was getting up and getting ready to walk out, Mr. Warren says, and when you come back tomorrow, make sure you have a suit on and that ponytail is gone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so clean up and look like you you know what you're doing. So went to the barbershop, got a haircut. I didn't even have a suit, went out and bought a suit. 
came back the next day, did the application process. And within like a couple of weeks, he called me and said, someone had dropped out of the academy. Um, are you interested? So at that time, I'd already applied to FBI. I was waiting for their response. But, you know, bird in hand, mm-hmm. 24 years old, you're like, hey, I'm going to go with this. Awesome. So I took the invitation, uh, went down to the academy, graduated September um, 89, and then went to my first post of duty, which was Detroit, Michigan. Well, you went to, uh, it's funny that you mentioned like how it kind of started there. It's You never know who's going to walk through the door and what they're going to end up being. So it kind of gave you a little test, get yourself squared away before tomorrow. And you're able to do that. So it worked out in the end, I guess. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, Mr. Warren was like, if you're serious, you got to bring serious attitude. So, yeah. you know, the message to me was, you know, you got to clean up a little bit and show me that you can, you're, you're ready for this type of job. <laughs> and I got the message loud and clear. <laughs> can you t- uh, talk a little bit about training? So what's training with the DEA like in that time? Well, at that time we were sharing, we were working through the FBI's training academy in Quantico. We've since then built our own academy also in Quantico. But, you know, it was, it was basically three months, very, I, I consider it uh, a graduate level academic course in law, you know, um, excuse me, in um, drug interdiction, drug identification, um, and just basically what it means to be a DEA agent, the paperwork, um, lots of tests, very big emphasis on physical fitness. Mm. Every day you start up, you know, you're, you're in the gym, you're going for a run, you're in the pool swimming. And then, of course, a very big emphasis on firearms and safety training. Okay. Right. So, I mean, every day it was something. And you were critiqued, you were evaluated every day. And the counselors had a board with everybody's picture up on it. And uh, if you weren't, if you weren't making the grade, you were cut. Really? So we lost maybe four or five people in my class. You know, either it was academics, physical fitness, or firearms. If you didn't pass the third firearms qualification halfway through, you were gone. Wow. And some people just could not. Could not manage the firearms, didn't have the mentality for it, which, you know, what I liked about DEA training is it, it's long enough to weed out those who really aren't cut out for it, whether it's DEA, FBI, Customs and Border Patrol. These academies are long and they're very strenuous in order to make sure only the best qualified get through it and then are given a badge and a gun and the authorization to go out and enforce the, the laws of the U.S. Is that... Um... Is that something like your family, did they support you going into law enforcement or they kind of hesitant about supporting that? Well, my father, <clears throat> my father was an engineer and, and an artist and he passed away when I was about 11. And my mother was a teacher in chemistry, biology, you know, uh, she was an academic mm. and she wanted me to go to law school. And uh, when I came home and told her, I went down to DEA. She was like, well, first of all, what's DEA <laughs> and what's going on with law school? I said, well, DEA, you know, these are the guys you know you see on TV, and yeah, and then she she throws out Miami Vice. I go, maybe <laughs> I don't know, right? Yeah. So she was like, "What are you?" Yeah, maybe in the future. <laughs> maybe in the future. I was like, I don't know anything about it, right? She's like, "What are you doing? You got to go to law school." So she she never really accepted it. Yeah. You know, even after years in the career, traveling around the world, she was like, "Yeah, but you would have been a brilliant lawyer, right?" <laughs> Parents and their dreams for their kids. Exactly. I was just about to say that. Um, so, well, so you get in, it's 89. Right. Um, can you tell us kind of where's America at that time? And you're posted to Detroit, right? which is uh, it's a very blue collar city. Everybody knows it for its vehicles. But um, can you just talk a bit about the environment of America in general and what sure. you're walking into? Well, you know, at that time, um, DEA had an operation called Operation Snowcap. And it was really America's only real drug war 
in Central and South America. DEA had agents in Bolivia, Colombia, and Peru who were actually boots on the ground in the jungles fighting drug traffickers. Um, so when I got to Detroit, I immediately applied for that program. In order to get into that program, though, you had to be selected and then qualify and go through U.S. Army Ranger Special Forces training, which was the full course minus air jump and desert phase. So immediately I signed up. I got accepted into that program, went down to Ranger School, got qualified. And then I was posted to Bolivia, where I worked in Trinidad, close to the Brazilian um, Amazon jungle border. So I did that for four years. Hmm. Three, four months tours, go back to Detroit, then go back down and do your, your tours. But at that time, Detroit was really in the midst of a serious crack cocaine. I would say America's first drug epidemic, right, was crack cocaine. It basically ravaged the inner city of Detroit. You know, crack cocaine was extremely addictive. Mm-hmm. It didn't kill you right away like fentanyl, but it was like a slow death. It just slowly drained the life out of people till they eventually succumbed to illness, addiction, in other other situations such as that. Um, you know, and this was this was like domestic drug trafficking organizations. You know, they were buying cocaine from the Mexican cartels or directly from Colombia. Then they were rocking it up themselves and selling it. Um, within the city of Detroit, you know, it domestic trafficking groups like the Chamber Brothers, Best Friends, other very big gang organizations, extremely violent. That's when we saw Detroit leading the country in homicides within the inner city, close to 600 homicides a year. Wow. Um, very violent culture. And so DEA in Detroit, we had a number of groups that were targeting those organizations. And we were very successful in basically mitigating that threat and dis- dismantling a lot of those organizations, put a lot of bad guys in jail. So even back in the 80s, before internet and everything else, this big, big deal, I mean, the world was still very interconnected. There were still drugs coming from one country to another to another. Uh, I mean, people can watch all kinds of movies on that now. You see Narcos on Netflix, probably the most recent popularized one. But um, when you got in there, and I know DEA has a focus on drugs, obviously, but did you have a specific uh, leaning to any sort of specialty when you were in there? Well, my partner, my senior partner, he had done a lot of undercover. So he really worked with me, mentored me. And I also started doing a lot of undercover as a mid-level drug traffickers. So I'm working with informants. I would go out and I would meet mid-level drug traffickers, heroin, cocaine, get introduced, and then make a series of buys and work that case up to a point of, you know, continuing investigation or arrest and prosecution. But I also worked with the high intensity drug trafficking task force. Uh, I believe in one particular case, it was a small city outside of Detroit that had been completely overrun with uh, Crips. I believe it was a Crips drug trafficking gang. And they were selling rocks on the corner. I mean, it was, it was everywhere. It was, a, it was an extreme situation. So I did over 200 undercover buys um, in that community within a four to five month period. After each purchase, the task force would identify who I purchased from, who they were, where they lived. And at the end of that investigation, we rounded up over two to 250 members of the Crips Jeez. drug trafficking organization and successfully prosecuted them. And at that time, it was five grams got you five years. So the minimum mandatories were serious. Um, But I think that that time you needed needed serious sentencing guidelines to show people that, hey, if you got caught with five grams, you were going to jail for five years. And Mm -hmm. if you had any priors, that increased the time that you could be incarcerated. 
That's kind of like, I was just going to say, like, you, you almost kind of see the pendulum swinging, right? It, it was serious back then and you got serious time. Now, I mean, almost short of homicide, you can pretty much be walking out the door in the next day or two if you got to go for bail. So maybe we're kind of coming back to where punishments are a, a serious thing. Well, I mean, if you look at, you know, I hate to get political, but if you look at the, the equity and that they're working into law enforcement in progressive states, New York, California, mm-hmm. Chicago, um, the equity is about getting people out of jail, not convicting people. And that's really just sent a message to inner city drug, well, to all drug traffickers in that sense, that there's no penalties. Decriminalization, um, possession of narcotics under three, three grams is allowed in many states. So we went from the 90s where it was like a full-on press, let's, let's clean out our inner cities, let's go after these domestic drug trafficking groups too. Well, they're really the victim of systemic racism mm-hmm. and we need more equity to bring fairness to our judicial system. And I think that's kind of backfired. If you look at Chicago last week, the entire city was overrun mm-hmm. by juveniles, right? And you have a mayor that says, well, they're just kids blowing off steam because there's no economic opportunity. So if you're those thousand kids on the street, you just heard subliminally yeah. that you can do whatever you want. Yeah, not even subliminally. It is literally just right. spoken word <laughs> telling people, we're not going to do anything about it. It's not your sure. fault. So, um, man, that, that yeah, it's a crazy world right now. Uh, one thing I do want to ask, since you're talking about uh, the undercover side of things, was the tattoos. Your picture uh, on social media got quite a few tattoos. Is that from the undercover stuff? Or did you have that before? That came long after. Uh, after I started working oh. in Pakistan, I was doing some work over there. Started working with a lot of groups, um, other government organizations, if you will. And uh, kind of got into the whole motif of the military ink. Mm. You know, kind of identifying who you were, what you were doing, and what you believed in. Okay, okay. Yeah, I mean, some pe- people can see when I post the links after uh, this episode gets posted. They can find you on social media. They'll see. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, so one of the things I was going to ask about uh, before we get real deep into the drugs and the way things are right now is just some of the deployments throughout your career. You've been to Islamabad. Um, you do have parts where you've worked um, with or in other countries. Can you talk about some of those? Um, maybe some just some of the highlights. Sure. And even if there's some lowlights, some places you're like, this is the worst thing I ever did. But you know, it's funny, the, the worst places to go are some of the best places for drug enforcement. <laughs> yeah. Right? So yeah. it's like, I wouldn't want to go to the UK because it's, you know, you're in a liaison role. So I'd rather go to <laughs> Afghanistan, Pakistan, where your boots on the ground, you can actually get something done. So, I, you know, I went to my first overseas tour was in Pakistan in 1999. I was working in Islamabad as a special agent. I was there for six years. And there, you know, you're working with wow. the counterparts, um, intelligence development, investigations, sharing information. And I actually had a chance to do some undercover um, as a West African drug trafficker working with the police to identify some of the West African groups that were starting to build up in Pakistan. They were purchasing heroin and shipping it back to um, West Africa, primarily in Nigeria. And it was a big problem because it's a very very insulated group, Mm -hmm. right? It's very difficult to get into a West African group if you're not West African. So I worked with the police uh, under the concept that they would never suspect a black undercover DEA agent in Pakistan posing as a Canadian black buyer, right? So it worked. And I was, I did several investigations where I would get introduced and the the Pakistani trappers were more than happy to meet a West African who wanted to buy heroin. Wow. And just the concept of me being an agent um, 
never crossed their minds. And in one particular case, they arrested a group, a very high level group who was moving heroin. And when the police arrested them, they also arrested me, put me in handcuffs, pushed me out the door. Then when they were questioning the Pakistani traffickers, they said, where'd you get the heroin? I said, look, officer, we don't know anything about this. There's this Nigerian guy named Mike. It's all his heroin. Or we were just there by accident, right? Of course, they got convicted, did like 20 years in jail. But I had a very successful career there in Pakistan. Um, then I went back to Pakistan in 2000 and 2008 for another six years. Um, at, at the end of that, I was promoted to country attache and was transferred to New Delhi, India, hmm. um, 2010 to 2014. Um, and from that position, I also worked in Central Asia and Dushanbe, Tajikistan as a country attache for almost a year. But then as a Southeast Asian um, attache, I covered the Maldives, I covered Nepal, I covered Bangladesh, um, Sri Lanka. So I did a lot of traveling, working with, you know, five or six countries, um, trying to get them all to work together with the Pakistanis because they all had this shared problem of Afghani heroin, which was saturating Southeast Asia. Wow. And so when you're doing all this movement stuff, um, are you bringing any family with you? Or are you on your own? Well, this is the reason I'm still single, I think, because okay. I got caught up. <laughs> I got caught up in the job. I love the overseas environment. And at that time, it just seemed easier to move fast and not have the yeah. family. Yeah. Um, the position of attache. So can you explain what that does exactly? Because my only frame of reference is, uh, and this is having gone and talked with some DEA guys on a file that's connected to Edmonton, um, is you basically have to ask them for permission to come into whatever country they're running. So is that the main function? They're kind of overseeing just DEA operations within a country? Well, basically the way it works, uh, within every country, obviously you have a U.S. embassy. So in Pakistan, Islamabad, you have a U.S. embassy, which has various departments under the State Department. Of course, the ambassador is the chief uh, officer there. So within that organization, DEA has an office. So you would have six or seven agents in the embassy working under a country attache who was the, who was the, the boss for lack of a better term, um, in charge of DEA, the representative in the embassy, he would brief the ambassador of the departments. Um, he would be the head contact with the, with the local police officers or the local prosecutors, kind of the point man running the operation. Mm -hmm. So in each embassy, you would have a DEA office with maybe from as low as two agents in a country attache to, you know, like Colombia, you have maybe 30 or 40 agents throughout that country. Okay. Um, so maybe we'll move a bit into talking about some of the current events sure. uh, and things that we're going to get on to. Uh, one of the questions I kind of want to start with, though, and usually I do this at the end, is, is who's doing things right? But I thought maybe we we'll start with that right now and just see what are, you know, what are your thoughts about who's doing things right when it comes to fighting drugs? And I, and I ask that because there's, there's a lot of aspects to this, but I mean, we see the arguments for legalization, decriminalization, uh, however people want to frame it. But it seems like we're only seeing more and more drugs. Fentanyl, opioids are exploding. Now there's even stronger variants of that. So is anybody doing anything right out there? Man, you know, it's hard. Where do you start with a reference like that? Because there's so <laughs> many people with so many viewpoints. Let's just start with law enforcement. You know, you hear the term, mm -hmm. the war on drugs is a failure. 
right? In mm-hmm. my opinion, there's never been a domestic war on drugs in the term of a war on drugs, such as a war on terrorism, right? DEA, local and state police officers, law enforcement agencies, we are bound by what's called the Constitution. I'm sure everybody's heard of that. Within that Constitution, we have constitutional limitations on what we can do as police officers, as law enforcement personnel. Rule of law, Miranda, right? Mm-hmm. There are all these contextual rules which guide our actions, which make it somewhat harder to fight criminality when they have no rules. But we do it by the numbers, and it takes time. So drug traffickers, there is no rule. They can do whatever they want, and they don't have to get it right the first time. Yeah. Law enforcement, we do. So, you know, in a typical investigation in Detroit, it may take six to seven months just to work one group. You're focused on that one group. Then you make your arrests, your prosecutions, then your trial begins. That can be another six months to a year. And that whole time, several agents are focused solely on that case. Meanwhile, you've got other groups developing and and emerging within Detroit, Chicago, New York, as more drugs are coming on, coming into the country. So the war on drugs is really, it's not really a war per se. It's an administrative procedure to identify, prosecute, and convict, you know, high-level drug traffickers. And it has been extremely successful given the limitations that DEA has, not just DEA, but law enforcement in general have on them. I mean, can you imagine if there was no police, as some people are advocating, some politicians are advocating, yeah. we don't need police. Just imagine the... What would happen? The tsunami of criminality, of drugs, of violence. Chicago would be an everyday scene across America. Well, it'd turn into essentially a, a picture like Mad Max, and we'd all be living in our little forts, and it would just be chaos. Like as soon as you walk out, you're basically a risk for catching a bullet or something happening sure. to you. So yeah, and you know what? We even in Canada, we had some of those narratives, not quite as strong, but definitely defunding. Uh, that was a huge narrative up here. And we see our chief is constantly in city council arguing about budgets. Um, so I don't envy his job. What, uh, one of the things that you brought up a few times uh, when I saw some of your social media posts was talking about the cartel networks and the arms of them within the US and I guess probably Canada to a degree that nobody's talking about. So can you talk a little bit about that? What did you mean by what's inside America already? and that people aren't paying attention to. Right. I mean, let's just look at the whole structure. You have the, let's just say, Mexican cartels. Two primary cartels are the Sinaloa cartel and the New Generation or Jalisco cartel. Those are your two Mm. dominant cartels. And of course, there are five other major cartels, and then there are a lot of other smaller and significant cartels. So let's just say Sinaloa, for example. Sinaloa is working with Chinese organized crime groups in Mexico and in China to coordinate Let's just focus on fentanyl, the fentanyl precursor supply chain, right? Fentanyl is fentanyl precursors are moved from China to Mexico where the Sinaloa cartel then mass produces millions and millions of fentanyl pills and kilograms of powder. The cartel then smuggles that fentanyl into the United States through their transportation networks, right? They're controlling Mm -hmm. that product. They're moving it to Detroit. They're moving it to Chicago. They're moving it to New York. And then once in those locations, they then sell it to what I call the proxy or the domestic trafficking groups, the Crips, the Bloods, the Russians, the organized uh, motorcycle gangs that you have in Canada. They then buy the fentanyl, they buy the heroin and methamphetamine, they then distribute it 
throughout the United States, right? They're the action arm of the cartel. And it's been so profitable with fentanyl. Sinaloa is actually setting up their own distribution networks to cash in on the profits. So now they're bringing it into the country and selling it themselves within certain mm. communities as wholesalers and retailers, right? Doubling their profit, making literally hundreds of millions of dollars or then laundered through other Chinese organizations back to Mexico. Do you think, would that set, I guess, potentially set up the uh, a massive conflict with the groups that are already there? So when you talk about more the street level groups or the mid-level, and they go, well, how come you're cutting me out of the deal now? Like, would I, I just find it, it's like, well, wouldn't that put the cartels at a, a huge risk because you're trying to operate from outside the U.S. and send all your instructions inside and control things. So how do they kind of manage that, that relationship with the current existing groups in America? Well, America's a big country, right? And Sinaloa is the source of supply. Nobody's going against the source of supply. They call the mm. shots, basically. But if you're, if you're inner city Detroit or inner city Chicago, South Side, and you're the Crips or the Bloods, that's your territory. Sinaloa is not going to try and go into that and take it over. But if you talk about Utah, if you talk about Wisconsin and Iowa, these small cities where there are no Crips, no Bloods or Latin Kings, mm -hmm. Sinaloa can send people up there almost like it's kind of like colonization, cartel colonization. It's exactly what mm -hmm. it is. If you go back a thousand years, yeah. Europeans colonized the world. They sent their little envoys out, set up shop and set up domain. The cartels have done the same thing. They're extremely business savvy. Mm -hmm. So well, who's in Utah, some small little city no one ever heard of? Well, let's send some people up there and set up a fentanyl distribution. They send five or six guys, a family up there, and now they've colonized, right? And that colony spreads out. Yeah. And they gain power, right? In addition to supplying all the other established trafficking groups. You know, there is a law, there is, there is a very strict law that works for the drug trafficking organizations, its boundaries. And why you see so much violence, say, in South Side of Chicago, is that there's so much, the supply is so great, that if I'm a 56th Street crew, right? In Chicago, they're called crews. Each street has a crew. If I want to expand my distribution territory, I've now got to go to war with other street crews. And that's where you see the increase in violence, because now they see the money, the opportunity. And of course, like any business, you want to expand. But how do you expand within a bubble, mm -hmm. right? You think about all, if you think about molecules, thousands of molecules bouncing into each other in a confined space, at some point in time, that friction builds and you have an explosion. And that's where you see your drug violence occurring across America, you know, in these small, confined inner city spaces where people are fighting for control of the drug trafficking networks. But now if you go to Canada or if you go to Europe, you don't see that violence. Because all those organizations understand territory and confinement. This is your piece. This is my piece. We don't want the attention of the government to come down on us. Mm -hmm. So we're not going to have drive-bys and shootings. We're not going to push as much fentanyl because that's killing people. And what does that do? That brings attention to us. Mm -hmm. America is really unique in its drug culture where they don't care about the police. They don't care about attention. And they're just going to flood the system. And when they look at decriminalization and progressive laws like no bail, no cash bail, they say, hey, the system is normalizing, right? Normalizing drug use. Yeah. And no one's going to jail. So what's that going to do? That's going to create more demand. And if more demand, it's going to create more product. 
Do you think that also um, kind of leads into the debate about legalizing things or decriminalizing? Whether we're given a ticket uh, for people having drugs or just not doing anything at all, you're allowed to have a, say, under five grams personal possession. Do you think that leads into that normalizing? So, you know, kids are now, hey, the government says it's okay. What's the big deal? What do I care what my parents say? Well, everybody looks to Europe. Europe has normalized drug use. They've legalized drugs for the last 20 years. You go to Switzerland, you go to Portugal, you go to Spain. Under three grams of any substance is basically been decriminalized. But if you look at the seizure rates for narcotics, narcotic seizures have increased dramatically. Mm -hmm. I think Portugal last year seized like 14 metric tons of cocaine, eclipsing the seizures from last year. So what we can gather from that, what we can assess is that the legalization or normalization of narcotics in Europe has increased drug use. The cartels are now making more money because there's less arrests, less prosecutions, right? The argument in the United States for decriminalization is they say, oh, well, prohibition, right? We tried to control alcohol. Well, here's the difference between alcohol. If you're an alcoholic, it's going to take you about three decades to die from alcohol toxicity. Yeah. If you're a drug addict and you're taking fentanyl, you got about 30 minutes before you die, mm -hmm. right? So the, the argument for alcohol to fentanyl, coke, and heroin is not equal because they're different substances. You know, you and I can go out one day, have a couple of drinks, drive home, and we're fine. You and I get together and do a couple of shots of fentanyl, high probability is one of us or both of us are going to die immediately. Yeah. So the harm reduction argument for legalization, in my opinion, is not a good one because it does not take into effect the toxicology of the substances. You know, people will throw in sugar, they'll throw in diet soda to try and make their argument. And I'm saying, hold on a second. Our bodies can can withstand certain things, certain tolerance rates. But if you sit down and you drink a glass of gasoline, there's going to be some problems. Right. <laughs> yeah. And when you look at what goes into these products, methamphetamine, it's gasoline. It's, it's other very to toxic substances that if you were to take alone would kill you instantly. So how can you legalize something which, you know, in the long run will only increase the addiction rate? And here's the thing. There's no off ramp. There's some treatment, but 99 percent mm. of people recidivism rate is extremely high. They go right back to what they're doing. The average treatment program can take one to two years per individual, assuming they have the financial resources to go to the best clinics. Yeah. Well, um, and that's something that uh, you talked about on a recent podcast with Neil Jackson. Yes. Um, so you talked with him about that. I actually have his episode with, I had an episode with him that came out today. So um, people can go listen to both of those episodes because uh, quite the thing that he's created Right. This uh, fentanyl blocking patch, mm -hmm. um, but one of the things that you know, talking about the legalization, and up here we saw with cannabis when they legalize it, um, the government says you know we're going to basically push out the black market. But all I all I've heard that it's done, and from what I've seen to a little degree, is some of these organized crime groups with the professionalization of them uh, of themselves and their business models and stuff. They basically just, they're involved in all kinds of industry. So they have ownership stakes in the companies the government will hire to grow it or whatever other drugs that they're going to produce. They're on the supplying side still, but now it's legalized. It's legitimized because the government's buying from them. And they might not know that, which is insane, but they might not know that. But then they own businesses right down to the cannabis store on the corner. So they're making money on both ends of 
the whole legalization debate. So I imagine you see that in the U.S. too. Well, exactly. I mean, when we said legalization, it opened a door and it, it, the cartels could not have asked for a better Christmas wish gift because now they can come in and they can control both sides of it. They can finance it because they have unlimited resources. So now they're creating front companies to, to sell legalized marijuana. Then they create the companies to grow legalized marijuana. And then they're still producing multi-tons of illegal marijuana in their country and pushing it in to the United States. Because here's the thing, you know, if you go into a store and you want to buy some marijuana, you can only buy so much, Yeah. right? Because you can't buy, go in there and buy like a pound. But whoever goes into a store and buys one can of beer, right? <laughs> you go in, you buy a six pack, you buy a 24 pack. If you're only going to sell me one can, I'm going to go around the corner and I'm going to buy the other six cans from somebody who's selling illegal marijuana. So the cartels are making money from the illegal distribution and from the legal distribution, mm -hmm. right? And then again, let's look at the let's look at the addiction of marijuana. The marijuana today, the THC content, which is the relevant psychoactive substance in it, is now over 90%. And there are all kinds of studies out there now how that increased TAC is creating marijuana addiction, how it's destroying or damaging the minds of individuals under 24 years of age. So if you're 15 or 16 years old, they're finding in these studies that this high concentration THC is damaging the brain development of minors, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and it's extremely addictive. So really that whole argument of, well, it doesn't hurt anybody, which was a six was a 20-year-old argument when THC was like six to seven percent. Yeah. Right. So the traffickers like this, like the cigarette companies know that if we can increase the THC, we can increase the addiction or the draw to the narcotic. Mm -hmm. Right. That's what nicotine does to a cigarette. That's the addictive quality. But then the difference between nicotine and and, and fentanyl, again, you can smoke for 30, 40 years, and then you know you wake up one day with cancer. It can take several decades. Mm -hmm. to get cancer from cigarettes. Again, with heroin, meth, fentanyl, you're talking a matter of weeks, days, hours, seconds before you succumb to a fatal overdose. Well, uh, and you mentioned it, uh, and this was something that you'd pointed out that we can maybe talk about, was the two different types of groups or general categories of people that are targeted with these drugs like opioids. One was the 15 to 24-year-olds that you know, might take the odd pill. There's like a party drug or something they use. Mm -hmm. But then you have the second group, which is the long-term uh, drug users that are looking for the stronger stuff. Um, can you talk a bit about the groups and how they're targeted? Sure. We're talking about two distinct paradigms. Now, when I was an agent in the early 90s working in Detroit, you know, we were talking about long-term heroin users, right? Drug users. And of course, at that time, people were taking prescription pills um, but it really wasn't at the forefront. They were not part of the drug culture. But then we fast forward to Purdue Pharma, beginning around 2012, we see the beginning of a new paradigm of opioid prescription drug users, right? Uh, there was a movie that was recently out called Dope Sick, under, I think it was Hulu, who talks about that, that mm -hmm. situation. So we fast forward 10 years of extensive Oxycontin addiction, then suddenly Purdue Pharma gets called out and Oxycontin's cut off. All of those, a majority of those individuals who were addicted to Oxycontin then transitioned to heroin. Now they became long-term heroin addicts who previously never took controlled narcotics before. And then we look at the introduction of fentanyl. Fentanyl gets put into the heroin line to create fentanyl users, right? That's one paradigm. The other paradigm is your traditional 
um, traditional substance users who were using heroin, coke, methamphetamine for years, and now they're using fentanyl. But the third and surprising paradigm is the 17-year-old who takes an Adderall because he's got a backache from a friend, and it's fentanyl, and he dies. So what the cartels learned from Purdue Pharma is that there's this whole untapped market of pill users who will never most likely transition to hard narcotics such as fentanyl and heroin, let's target them with fake fentanyl pills. Mm. Sure, a couple will die, but in the long run, we'll create new drug users. Mm. And that's exactly what's happening. Those who don't die from the fentanyl pill like the high. Then they take another fentanyl pill. It's a great high. Next thing you know, they're going to purchase fentanyl, pure fentanyl, right? Now the cartels have brought in a new pool of addicted individuals who will now attempt to purchase heroin or fentanyl. And the American addiction to pills is really feeding that addiction for the cartels. So the cartels love pills because it's easy to bring people from pills over to narcotics Mm. because now with the regulations, your doctor can only give you six Percocets and you know six is not enough because you're going to double up on those Mm -hmm. and you're going to be out before the end of the week and you're going to go to your street dealer and say, hey, look, I need some illegal Percocets. He's going to sell you fentanyl tell you it's Percocets, and you either die or you get hooked. So now you have three paradigms of drug users, almost four paradigms of drug users that are feeding in to the cartel business plan. And if you want to go to the fifth paradigm, you have the cartels working with the pharmacy industry in Mexico that are selling counterfeit HIV drugs, counterfeit cancer drugs, which have been found to contain fentanyl, and methamphetamine. So there's even a more sinister plot by the cartels to target the elderly, to target those who are suffering from critical pain and critical diseases who would never think about going to street drugs. But then once you get hooked on a fake HIV medication that you find that's fentanyl, now you're hooked on fentanyl. You don't even, you don't even care about your HIV or your cancer. So now you maybe you die sooner from those diseases because you're not taking the right medication. Really? Well. The other thing too, I wonder is, so if they're selling fake pills um, and say you take one of these, how do you, how do you learn about like what you actually took so that you know what to seek out? Because I imagine the drug dealers are going to say, oh, just, just joking. I actually sold you this. Maybe they don't even know, right? Because they're so far down the line. So I wonder how, how uh, somebody learns like what I was actually taking and now I want more of that. Because if you're taking an Adderall, you're taking a Xanax for for anxiety, and you've taken it several times, you understand what that feels like, Mm. right? It's like if you drink a Coke or a Diet Coke, you understand the difference because you like one or the other. Okay. So you're taking that you're taking that Xanax, and suddenly it's not Xanax, but it's got one and a half milligrams of fentanyl. You're like, hey, this is not Xanax. This is something else. You know what? I like it. This is much better. So I go back to my guy or girl, Mm. and I buy a couple more, and maybe they don't know or they don't tell me. But then I began to get hooked on that because it's one and a half milligrams of fentanyl, which is more addictive than Xanax. So now I'm like, I really need that, right? I'm to that point where I'm like, I got to have whatever it is I was buying. And I know it's not Xanax. So I started asking around and like, oh man, you're probably taking fentanyl. Mm-hmm. Okay. There's probably some fentanyl in it. Well, hey, let me get some more of that. Is it safe? Sure, it's safe. It's no problem. And you buy six or seven more pills, but then you get that one pill. It's got two milligrams of fentanyl. And you die within 30 seconds. Yeah. Right. And that's that 17 year old football star, that 13 year old cheerleader with straight A's, you know, who thought he or she was getting, you know, something they had been taking 
before and they understand what it is, suddenly there's a transition, not quite the same feeling, but it feels really good. And now my body's in the process of becoming addicted to a much more potent substance. And now they got you. Cartel's happy. Is, um, you know, and I've heard this a few times that regular police work doesn't work when you're dealing with cartels. Community policing isn't going to solve a cartel problem. Um, so the use of military and counterintelligence uh, agencies, like, are, are, is that kind of the only way you can deal with an actual cartel? And maybe even the groups that are working for them. So you talk about Bloods and Crips. Is it maybe a point where you need to have military type action uh, or intelligence working on these groups? Well, your question brings to the point two different strategy, two different strategy approaches. One domestic, one international. Hmm. But you're leaving out one. That's the internet revolution, right? That's created a whole new genre of cottage industry drug traffickers, which in my I use the term cottage industry as those who are never thought about getting into drug trafficking, but see how easy it is. And now they're startups, right? Okay. The tech startups, these are like the drug startups. These are the guys and girls, the Jacks, the Jill and Jacks who sit around and think, you know what? I could get on the internet, set up an organization, get some Bitcoin, buy something from China, mix it and sell it for my house and never leave my house, mm-hmm. right? I can work from home. So that's another conversation. But back to your initial question, you know, the same techniques work today that worked when I was doing undercover, right? You, you go into a high drug uh, distribution zone and you flood it. You do undercover. You do your wire intercepts. You do your, your basic investigations. Understand who the big players are in those communities. And then you, you go out, you make your buys, you do your investigation, you do your arrest and your convictions. But here's the problem. Equity has changed that. Unfortunately, mm. a lot of the big drug trafficking groups in the inner cities are African-American. Right. So it's a very delicate question. How do we go in and target African-American groups in Chicago, in Detroit without how do we avoid the racist issue? Mm -hmm. Right. People are going to say, oh, well, you're just targeting black people because you're racist police department. Right. The Ferguson effect has changed the way we do policing in the inner city. And now a lot of police departments are like, well, if we go in and we we flood that zone, there's going to be conflict. Some drug trafficker is going to shoot at my officer. My officer's going to shoot that young man or woman, and they're going to be African-American or Hispanic. Mm-hmm. It's going to become a racial issue. The Ferguson effect now is attached to police work, which makes it very difficult to go into the inner cities, which is where we see, unfortunately, the highest propensity of violence and assaults and murders or in the inner city communities, as opposed to, obviously, the suburbs. And that's just the facts. That's just the data. That's not a political yep. spin. Right. That's just the evidence as it situates, as it's situated. So community policing, no, it's not going to work in those communities. But then when we talk about the external enforcement, right? I was part of Operation Snowcap. I would have boots on the ground in those countries. And for the short time we had that program in play, I think from 1985 to 1996, it was very, very successful. It was so successful that most of the countries canceled the program because we were making an impact. Right. We were out in the jungles. I myself in Bolivia, I was running precursor interdiction unit with the Bolivian forces, a special forces unit. So we would work with informants, develop intelligence and go out and actually find the precursor chemical dump sites and then blow them up. Any planes, anyone involved in that, we went after them as well. So, you know, for four years, we we crushed it, man. I mean, we we put them out of business wherever we were. It was a very, very aggressive operation. 
But then the Bolivian government said, well, you guys are having too much success. We don't want you to go to these areas. Go to these other areas, hmm. right? We So we cleared out that area. We need to go to zone B. They said, well, no, zone B is off limits. Hmm, okay. Right, so then all the politics and the cartels push back. It's all the same thing in Afghanistan. At some point, special operations groups are not allowed to go to the hot zones where the Taliban were. They can only go to where the green zones were. So we were being held back from actually affecting the ground reality. And that's what would else would happen in South America. But now Mexico, you know, you can't you can't parachute into Mexico City and turn it into an urban conflict like we did in Iraq. It simply won't work. We have to look at other ways of mitigating what I call the precursor chemical supply chain. Everything comes back to that supply chain. Yeah. You have to break the supply chain between Mexico and China and degrade the ability of the cartels to transport those, those precursors from point A to point B. Until you do that. We're going to be dealing with an ever-increasing amount of fentanyl, heroin, and methamphetamine coming into this country. No harm reduction or drug prevention program is going to stop the tsunami of new addicts that we're going to have every day. Is there anybody else that's supplying it outside of China? Like it, or at that quantity? Or is China the only one that can really do what they're doing? China is the primary one because it's well-structured and set up to do that. Of course, India is the world's second largest producer of precursor chemicals and pharmaceuticals. And I've worked a number of cases where precursors and um, you know, pharmaceuticals such as tramadol were being smuggled out of India to the Middle East, to the United States. And then, of course, you, know, you have chemical companies in, in the Balkans. You have chemical companies mm-hmm. in Russia. Um, there was a young lady, or well, not young, she was in her 50s, uh, in San Jose, California, who was a re- recently arrested for ordering uh, pharmaceuticals from several different countries, including those in Europe, where she would then resell on the internet. Wow. And she'd been doing it since 2012 or 2015, and she just recently got prosecuted. And here's the thing. Uh, middle-aged, white female, worked for a police department as an executive officer, wow. had drug parcels being sent to the police department. That's how comfortable she was, <laughs> right? She represents that new face, the new generation of drug trafficking. Yeah. Everybody's getting involved to set up a startup and make some quick money. That's craziness. Um, one of the ideas I've also heard out there is about uh, this flood of fentanyl coming in or precursors from China as like a reverse opium wars. And all the people I've talked to about China, like the different experts I've had on the program, is very interesting when they talk about um, the mentality of their culture versus the West. China thinks of things literally in hundreds to thousands of years. They're playing like the ultimate long ball and they don't let things go. <laughs> so something happened 100 years ago or 200 years ago, they are they remember it. Um, and then in the West, we kind of have like five, 10-year memories for a lot of things. Do you see that as maybe um, being a part of this? Is this like a reverse opium wars? They're flooding us with drugs over here now? Well, you have to look at the two political structures, right? Mm-hmm. That's where you have to, you have to understand that the PRC, the People's Republic of China, is a communist government. Everything flows symbiotically from the top to the bottom. There is no, no leadership, new leadership. There is no competing ideas. There is no freedom of press, right? So you have one guy in charge right now, the president in charge, mm-hmm. Xi Jinping. It's going to be his way for as long as he lives. And then the next guy. So the system is fixed. You know, in America, every four years, look at our system now. It's a complete shambles. Mm-hmm. We don't know which way we're going. So every year you get a new president, new administration, which goes a different direction. And then we start all over again. So everything Trump did 
And some of it was good in law enforcement. It's all gone. Biden replaced it with something else that's not working, i.e. the border, i.e. fentanyl coming across. So now we're starting all over again, trying to reinvent the wheel instead of using the wheel that was working, maybe fix a few spokes. But in terms of China, China has a major cocaine and methamphetamine problem. They execute roughly three to 400 people a year for drug trafficking. China has their own drug crisis, but they don't talk about it, obviously. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot. There's a big drug addiction problem in China. But then they look at the United States drug problem and they're like, you know what? We're not necessarily involved in sending precursors, but we're going to look the other way. It's what I call willful blindness. Mm -hmm. It's America's problem. You start to get into the politics. They're like, well, America, these precursors aren't illegal. Um, you You haven't regulated them. So why should we regulate them? Mexico says, well, we haven't regulated them. You haven't regulated them. So we're not going to regulate them. But we know we're killing all your people, but we're not really the best of friends. So we're not going to really help you. Right. So then you get into the political concept of the good neighbor policy. Right? Yeah. China is not the friend of America. I mean, I think that's pretty clear if you want to get off into another political conversation. Mexico is a failed state, in my opinion. President Obrador is simply deflecting his own failure to manage his government by saying it's the it's the fault of American parents who don't hug their kids. Mm. I think he's compromised. Either he's taking the money or he's trying to avoid the bullets. One of the two things are happening <laughs> in Mexico because what three or four high level Mexican officials have been indicted by DEA in the last five to six years. Uh, we go back to General Sanfuego, uh, mm-hmm. who was indicted and arrested. And then we had to release him because of political pressure. Mm-hmm. Release him or we, we shut down the U.S. Embassy and we kicked DEA out. So they released them. We still have our guys down in Mexico, but how effective are they? That's a that's another question for a different show. Yeah, man. What it's just when you get into the politics of it, especially it's you, you can't. People don't know all the stuff going on behind the scenes. You know, one thing I learned working overseas as a diplomat is that whatever story you hear, there's a hundred million things going on behind that story you never hear. Yeah, that resulted in that decision. And if you don't have that background information, you don't have that context. You either have to accept what you're being told or you question it, but then you don't have the access to the information to really understand how that decision was made or why a decision wasn't made or what decision should have been made. Yes. Yeah, that's actually something I say on here quite often when it comes to politics is people are either uneducated or misinformed about a lot of these things and they're missing uh, very important pieces. One of the things that you did mention, and I've brought this up a number of times too, is just like the de-policing. So you're talking about the inner city services, police services are afraid to go in and and deal with problems that are there because then you're going to get the racist card uh, pulled on you. And that is something that we've seen up here in Canada. Um, You get de-policing, you get the uh, blind eye turned to things that are right in front of you because you're like, dealing with that is not worth the complaint. I'm going to go deal with this person or something even small, jaywalking, like small crimes, just people walking all over in the road. Officers will just be like, you know what? Not worth the time because I'm going to tell this person to move and then I'm going to get recorded. It'll turn into a bigger thing. Now I've got a year's worth of complaints and professional standards and all stuff coming after me. So it definitely does hurt the communities, the very communities that need it the most. And oftentimes, the communities that are asking for more law enforcement to be in those communities. So, you know, it's a big problem. You know, here in the United States, you know, you have your representatives in Congress who represent Chicago, who represent San Francisco and LA. 
they're supposed to be representing the people. They're supposed to be protecting the people. That's how our, our government was set up to function. And I find it hard for the, to see these people on TV saying there's no problem in San Diego. There's no problem in San Francisco or Portland mm. or Chicago when you see the increased murder rates, when you see mobs shutting down businesses, when you see 70,000 homeless people in San Diego addicted to narcotics and they're giving them an $800 a month allowance to further wow. enable their drug addiction. How do you, with a straight face, say we're representing the, the wellness of the people when you're enabling criminality and drug trafficking? And it's not like it just happened. We've been looking at it for at least two years, increased, in, what's increased dramatically since the Trump administration. And certainly it was a drug problem then, right? But that problem has only gotten worse. Mm -hmm. And the very people that we're worried about helping, the inner city, the black and the brown folks, right? Giving them education, giving them jobs and economic opportunity. We're taking all that away because Walmart's closing. Yeah. Starbucks is closing. CVS. Um, all the stores in those communities are leaving because of the violence and the gangs and the police can't come and do anything. Mm -hmm. So what's that mean? You're removing economic opportunity. You're removing the tax base. No education. You're removing the banking community. No investments. Ferguson is still trying to survive years later, trying to rebuild after the people burned down their own city. Yeah. Right. So how do you you're creating a, a situation which makes it impossible for anything to grow? When you take the police out, when you take out the stabilization and you 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 authorize open air drug markets, hoping people will make the right decision. And we can certainly look at this over the last five years and see, well, if you're going to allow a person to just become addicted, obviously they're not going to make the right decision. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They're going to decide to remain addicted. Yeah. I couldn't have put it any better than that. Um, I think uh, when it comes down to it, like all the politicians, I think are a large part to blame. Um, it's the divisiveness that we see in the, uh, all the rhetoric between them. When at the end of the day, it's like they might agree on the final goal, but you know, have a slight differing way of getting to that. But right now, it just seems like we can't even agree on what the end goal is. It, it, everyone's just out there for themselves and saying basically nonsense to a, to a degree. Um, we're just kind of coming up to the end of our time here. I want to make sure I asked about your podcast, so the Opioid Matrix. Um, can you just talk a bit about that and let people know uh, what the show's about? You know, it's working with my company, Rigaku, they gave me a lot of... Um gave me a lot of leeway to develop uh, what I do is, is business management, business development. I said, you know, we need a podcast. Mm -hmm. We need to be able to talk about these issues. Regaku needs to be a company that's not just trying to sell drug identification equipment. Regaku needs to be a company that understands the drug problem, right? We're not just here to push a device. We're here to help bring people together and have a place where we can have an open conversation, much like you and I are having, where we can disagree, but still remain professional. Yep. Right. So I said, let's let's create this opioid matrix. Let's talk to people in harm reduction. Let's talk to people that are police officers. Let's talk to former addicts and drug dealers. Let's get that man on the ground viewpoint because they're the ones who understand what's going on. I don't need a lot of politicians coming in telling me what they think who've never been addicted to drugs, don't understand the drug situation, don't live in those neighborhoods. So really, their point of view is irrelevant. Mm -hmm. They're decision makers. But they're not making decisions based on the, re the ground realities we used to say in the military, yeah. right? 
I'm going to give you the ground reality. Don't give me a solution that doesn't fit. Yeah. So the opioid matrix is, I want you to come in. I want you to talk unfiltered. I want to talk about race. I want to talk about equity. I want to talk about all those issues which make it difficult to find a solution. And hopefully some decision maker hears a conversation and says, you know what? That makes a lot of sense. Let's take a look at that more closely. Like with, with Neil Jackson, he has a potential off-ramp yeah. with his product that could be used for, for drug addiction, right? Mm-hmm. So are people going to call and say, hey, Neil, let's see what that product's about. Because otherwise, he wouldn't have that platform. You know, and I commend you for your show as well, bringing on people, subject matter experts who can talk to these issues, who can give you the context behind the scenes, give you the context behind the question, the question behind the question, yeah. or the answer to that question. So that's kind of what the opioid matrix is really about. That's awesome. I've listened to a few of them. And uh, yeah, I mean, you have the, just a, it's a wide breadth of guests and you're talking about everything from um, devices or substances. Uh, you're talking to experts in all kinds of fields. And I mean, like you're saying, even with the podcast platform, you get that unfiltered, uh, direct from the ground uh, perspective. That's even what this podcast was built for. So I'm out there day to day. I work with people on the front lines. I still take a ton of overtime and work in patrol all the time. Sure. Um, so I know what people are asking. I know what they're seeing. And then I have people in here from politicians to the chief of police to experts. And I give them that unfiltered direct to them. There's you know no telephone game in between. And then they also, uh, they know when they come on here, it, it's an open discussion. This isn't a formal Q&A, the super safe, uh, you know, pre-scripted answers. Right. It's like, hey, we're just having a real discussion. And, you know, it's a platform for you to get your points across. So, yeah, I really appreciate what you're doing out there. Uh, the, the show is really good. I like it. I recommend other people go and listen to it um, if they want some real perspective. The U.S. issues are just the same in Canada. We see it mm-hmm. on a slightly smaller scale because we have less population, but um, per capita, we're seeing the same kind of violence, same kind of drug issues. Um, so uh, yeah, no, I really like what you're doing. Um, I just want to make sure I give you time to say how people can follow you and all the things that you're doing. So where can they find you? Yeah, they can just hit me up on my, my work email, which is michael.brown at Rigaku, that's R-I-G-A-K-U, or just look me up on uh, the internet. My, my face will pop up. And uh, all the information will be there. So if you want to, you want to get on the podcast, if you got something relevant to say, uh, let's have that conversation. Awesome. Um, just hang on the line for a second. I'll say bye offline. But uh, it was an honor having you on here and wealth of knowledge. So I hope people check out what you're doing. It's a pleasure. Appreciate the opportunity. Let's chat again.